Okay, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 this morning. A text is printed in the bulletin. Also, uh, starting a, a series in Matthew's Gospel. gospel the word gospel means good news, basically. So we're talking about Matthew's good news. The good news Matthew wants to share with us. Uh, Christians have always uh, wanted to spend a lot of time um, in the Gospels. Personal reading, study, devotional time, uh, sermons, etc. Right? So... Um, since that's the case, uh, basically every few years we, we come back to one of the Gospels or another, uh, and we spend a couple of years <laughs> in one, probably. Uh, so <clears throat> this may be the uh, only book your children ever remember uh, hearing a sermon about um, as they grow up in our church, <laughs> uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, I, <clears throat> you know, so there are only four Gospels in the Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, together they make up uh, about 10% of the content of the, the whole Bible. So not that much, right? Uh, but they really are the focal point of the scriptures because they're the accounts of the life and the work of Jesus. Um, Sarah asked me, you know, why are we doing Matthew next? And I gave her some basically mathematical reason for, you know, how the systems and the statistics all work out. And it's just, you know, come time for us to look at Matthew's gospel. Uh, but really, really, it's because it's about Jesus and he's the greatest person who ever lived. And all the scriptures about it are about him, but, uh, but especially the gospels. He's the unique God-man, right? He's God in the flesh. Um, he's the, the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ, right? He's the hero of the whole Bible. <clears throat> so, um, so that's why we're looking at the gospel. Um, heroes, you know, if you follow comic book movies, uh, comic, either the books or the movies, you know, about superheroes and stuff, uh, you realize that there's always, at the beginning of these stories, uh, a very interesting origin story. An origin story to describe where the heroes came from and how they became who they are. And so <clears throat> many of you uh, probably can, from memory, tell the origin stories of Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or even, even more, right? Uh, you know their real names. <clears throat> you know the cities that they live in. Uh, you know the names of their parents. You know how they got their powers or their skills and something about why they came to be a hero in the first place, why they like to help people or save, save people, right? Um, <clears throat> well, the hero of the Bible is the world's one true hero, Jesus, and he has an origin story too, and this is the beginning of Matthew's account of it that we're going to read uh, this morning. What we're going to read <clears throat> is going to seem a, a whole lot more mundane than the action-packed you know, adventure type stuff that we find in comic book origin stories. But actually, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's miraculous, and it's full of meaning for us. This might strike you as just sort of a tedious list of names that you skim over to get to the good stuff, but uh, Jesus' origin story actually makes a, a real difference for our lives. What we're about to read in this list of names makes a real difference for our lives. In a sense, this isn't just his story. It's not just Jesus' story. This is the origin story of the new creation. It's the new world that God is bringing about through his beloved son. And that's the wonder of the good news. Jesus gives us a story that's not just about him. He makes his own story our story. He brings us into his story. So um, <clears throat> hopefully that'll make sense in a few minutes anyway. Uh, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we do pray uh, as we always have need of your help as we come to your word. Uh, not just to understand it, but uh, to believe it, to be changed by it, to be renewed from the inside out, 
by your Spirit's work. So we pray that you would bless us as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this, I changed a tiny bit, really. Uh, it shows up over and over again in all the verses uh, from, the, from the ESV. Um, basically says, you know, things like Abraham was the father of Isaac. Or, uh, so I changed it all to brought forth Isaac. Anyway. Yeah. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham brought forth Isaac. And Isaac brought forth Jacob. And Jacob brought forth Judah and his brothers. And Judah brought forth Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez brought forth Hezron. And Hezron brought forth Ram. And Ram brought forth Amminadab. And Amminadab brought forth Nashon. And Nashon brought forth Salmon. And Salmon brought forth Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz brought forth Obed by Ruth. And Obed brought forth Jesse, and Jesse brought forth David the king. And David brought forth Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon brought forth Rehoboam, and Rehoboam brought forth Abijah, and Abijah brought forth Asaph, and Asaph brought forth Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat brought forth Joram, and Joram brought forth Uzziah, and Uzziah brought forth Jotham, and Jotham brought forth Ahaz. And Ahaz brought forth Hezekiah, and Hezekiah brought forth Manasseh, and Manasseh brought forth Amos, and Amos brought forth Josiah, and Josiah brought forth Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah brought forth Shealtiel, and Shealtiel brought forth Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel brought forth Abiud. And Abiud brought forth Eliakim, and Eliakim brought forth Azor, and Azor brought forth Zadok, and Zadok brought forth Akim, and Akim brought forth Eliud, and Eliud brought forth Eleazar, and Eleazar brought forth Mathan, and Mathan brought forth Jacob, <coughs> and Jacob brought forth Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was brought forth, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. It's really hard to read a list like that. Super exciting origin story, right? Uh, This isn't the only thing that can be said about where Jesus comes from. Uh, We'll get to some more of what Matthew talks about uh, in the story next week. Uh, But this is where Matthew wants to start the story. Why does Matthew want to start his gospel this way? What's the significance of uh, beginning with this genealogy? Uh, In order to understand that question, we need to know, it's it's a pretty basic fact, Matthew is trying to do something with his gospel. It's It's a simple thing to say. Uh, It seems pretty basic, but it's important. Matthew is trying to do something with his gospel. He isn't just recording everything he knows about Jesus. Uh, He is including specific material, and he is organizing it in a certain way. Each of the gospel writers does this. There's no generic story about Jesus. There's no Associated Press article 
basic report version of the facts, just the bare facts, which then gets picked up by the different news outlets and uh, rewritten <clears throat> from different perspectives into different audiences. There are four authors. There's no generic version of the Gospels. There's four authors writing from specific perspectives and for specific purposes. And that's okay. They're trying to do something. Uh, they're not trying to do what modern journalists do. Uh, and no one would have expected that of them until more recent times. <clears throat> These Gospels are all uh, well-crafted documents. They're organized, and they, they try to communicate certain things about Jesus with how they're written, which you can begin to see even here with the genealogy. So Matthew and Luke both contain genealogies, and there are differences in the way they write these genealogies down and record them for us. Uh, and Matthew has his here organized, you can see it a bit uh, visually as you look at it there, um, into three groups of 14 generations. It's not that there were literally precisely only 14 generations between Abraham and David or between David and the deportation, between the deportation and Christ. We know that there are names left out. We know it would have taken longer than just 14 generations for some of these time gaps to take place. Uh, um, there are names left out in order to present these generations in a certain way, right? Uh, in ways that communicate this big overarching narrative of the Old Testament, that there's a special people descended from Abraham and people like King David and events like the Babylonian cap captivity. There were defining, shaping features of the history of this people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, Israelites. Right? And the fact that there are 14 generations in each of these three sections, the way that Matthew writes it, uh, probably has to do with the symbolic significance of numbers. Right? We find throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, but the whole Bible, we find uh, that numbers have symbolic significance. So 14 is, uh, you know, it's probably significant because it's 2 times 7. Right? 7 is the number of completion. 7 is the number of consummation. It's the number of fulfillment which you see in the very first chapter of the Bible. God created the world in a week. It took six days for him to do his work, and on the seventh day, he rested, and he was satisfied, and there was this sense of fulfillment, right? So that's where the number seven and fulfillment or completion or perfection or consummation comes from. It's from the creation week. <clears throat> so in this genealogy, uh, three fourteens is the same as six sevens. And Jesus... At the end of it is, you could kind of say, he's the beginning of the seventh seven. Right? The seventh seven begins with Jesus. Jesus begins the fulfillment of the generations of all of God's people. And that's basically what Matthew's doing with his whole gospel. Very simply, he wants to show us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures. Right? What we have is the Old Testament. The one true God, Yahweh, He's been making himself known to this Hebrew people in particular. And the Old Testament tells us about who this God is and about his special works and his promises made concerning a savior who would come from Abraham's descendants through David's line, who would bless the whole world. The savior, the Old Testament that, uh, is, that the Old Testament is pointing forward to uh, is called the Messiah in many places which is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. He's the one who's anointed with God's own spirit to do God's own work in the world. And so in verse 1, Jesus is called Christ. And in verse 16, he is called Christ. And that word Christ, the Greek word Christos, is 
the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. Right? He's the one that the Old Testament is about. He's the Savior coming into the world. So we often think of Christ as something like Jesus' last name. Uh, it's not that. Uh, it's a title. And it's a title given to him because he's the most important person in the world. That's who he is. Uh, he's the most important person in the world according to God himself. And so Christ is something like his uh, superhero name. It's his, it's his title. So, <clears throat> so Matthew wants to tell the world that Jesus of Nazareth is this Christ, this Hebrew Messiah, the fulfillment of all the works and promises of God. So when you read the Old Testament, it's hard to miss. When you're talking about he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, it's hard to miss these major figures, the people that God is working with and working through and making promises to and meeting with. Uh, so when you're talking about the special people of God, um, a big part of the, the beginning of that story is uh, the story of Abraham and uh, continues on. A huge part of it is with David, right? So Abraham is the father of the faith. God is known as the God of Abraham and his descendants. Some of the major promises concerning God's blessing and salvation and the eventual coming of the Messiah begin with God's promises to Abraham. Uh, we read some of those in, uh, in our Old Testament reading, Joe Hamilton read from Genesis 17, where God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God repeated promises like this to Abraham a few times, we find in the book of Genesis, and to his son Isaac after him, and then to Isaac's son Jacob after him, and then to Jacob's sons after him, the twelve heads of the tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's sons, one of the twelve heads of the tribes of Israel, was Judah, and God's promises regarding the king, regarding the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would come particularly through Judah's line, and this royal line is traced through David and his descendants who sat on the throne in Judea until uh, the deportation to Babylon. And after the people of Judah were carried into exile in Babylon, the Old Testament scriptures, they don't really record the line of David much after that. <clears throat> so most of the names that we find in the third section of this genealogy are unfamiliar to us and probably just a result of uh, family record keeping. So, um, but we do know something about a lot of these people. We know something about a lot of these people. We know that this is a pretty messed up family tree. That's the first thing you're going to notice as you start reading these names. Yes, God was making promises to these people, but it's not because they were all good, deserving people. Not by a long shot. <clears throat> uh, just work your way through the list a little bit, right? Out of fear for his own life, Abraham let his wife be taken into another man's harem twice. Let that happen twice. Uh, Jacob deceived his father and swindled his twin brother out of his birthright. Judah and his brothers, mentioned here, the heads of the famous, the very famous 12 tribes of Israel, they threw their brother Joseph into a pit and sold him into slavery. Big transition point for the people of God. Tamar, uh, she played the prostitute to become pregnant by Judah. Rahab made her living as a prostitute. Boaz, I mean, he's a pretty good guy out of all the people in this list, but the big name in the list, the big name, the king of Israel's golden age, 
Well, when David fathered Solomon, the genealogy calls attention to the massive scandal of it by saying it, it was by another man's wife, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Solomon uh, wasn't content to have just one wife uh, or a hundred or 500. He had 700 and 300 concubines. So God disciplined Solomon and disciplined the whole nation because of Solomon. And that history wound its way through numerous bad kings and led them ultimately to this exile in Babylon. A very bad place to be for God's people. So you've got the who's who list of Israel's best and brightest people, and they're pretty much scoundrels and illegitimate children. That's what you've got in this list. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. Jesus belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us and came to help us. Uh, these are the people God made promises to over the centuries, the people God chose to work through. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to relate to these people and make promises to them. He chose to do it. When the Holy Son of God came into the world, he associated himself with people on this list. With these people. And yes, this is uh, overwhelmingly a Hebrew genealogy, but it's not strictly a Hebrew line that's recorded here. In fact, uh, each of the four women who were named in this list were Gentiles. They're not Jews. So Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was a Hittite. So the family tree of Jesus, recorded in Scripture and proclaimed for all generations, includes representatives from all of these nations. Which is good news for people from all nations. Good news for people from around all the world and people in this room. Uh, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who studied the Hebrew Scriptures, remembering the promises that uh, were made to Abraham, that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations would come from him. Right? It's those who believe who are children of believing Abraham, not just those who are biological Hebrews. So the, the Jewish Messiah wasn't from pure Jewish stock. Uh, he didn't just come from the people of Israel. He didn't just come for the people of Israel. He came to be the savior of the whole world, including all kinds of very bad people, all kinds of sinners, as represented in his family tree. So the line of promise here is traced all the way down to Joseph there at the end in verse 16, who was to be the husband of Mary. But Joseph isn't even Jesus' biological father. Right? We find that out from Matthew's gospel, the next part, another, you know, in Luke's gospel. Joseph, Joseph isn't Jesus' biological father. Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin, Mary. And we'll read again about that uh, next week. So, so Joseph was Jesus' legal father. Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father. And that is tremendously important. It really helps us to understand the true significance of this genealogy. Because normally, uh, you know, why do we do genealogies? In the, the value of a genealogy is in the biology. Isn't it? I mean, it traces an ancestry biologically. If it's not doing that, what good is it? 
It might strike us as an embarrassing fact that this whole list, this whole genealogy is basically broken right when it gets to the final link in this chain. Uh, It gets down to the end, there's no biological link at all. Some of you have been adopted, and maybe you feel a little strange talking about genealogies and family trees and stuff. Maybe it makes it a little complicated figuring out exactly who your people are. Uh, Jerry's grandpa found out that uh, when he was 85 years old, he found this out about a year or two uh, before he died, that he had been adopted as an infant. Nobody told him that. He found it out uh, in a really roundabout way, very late in life, and it had a profound effect on him, and he suddenly understood some of the ways that he'd been treated differently than his other siblings, and uh, he found out that he had this sister that he didn't know about in some other state, and he drove to meet her. It really had a, a, a big change in his perspective from uh, discovering that he had been adopted. And so for her whole life, Jerry was proud to have Irish blood in her, you know? Uh, her maiden name was Shannon, like the River Shannon in Ireland, this magical place, which she always wanted to visit because she felt she had this special connection. And she thought she had this great excuse for having such a bad temper, such a good Irish temper, you know? But no, she's not Irish after all, and it's kind of sad, and you don't know what to do with that, discovering that. So that's a weird spot in her family tree where it's hard to know what to make of it because isn't it the biology that matters in a genealogy? What's the point of a genealogy if I'm not linked to it biologically? Who am I really if I'm untethered from these people biologically? What's my real story? Who are my people if they're not related by blood? I mean, that seems to be the point of this genealogy for the most part. It's tracing the blood. It's highlighting, it's emphasizing the biological connections of the people of Abraham through the line of Judah and David right on down to Joseph. Abraham was the father, the biological father of Isaac, and he brought forth Isaac in a normal biological sense, and Isaac fathered Jacob and so on. But then you get down to the bottom of the list, and it seems as if the whole thing just gets thrown out the window. Why even record all of this anymore? Uh, Because Joseph's not involved in bringing forth Jesus But that's precisely the point. That's the significance of the whole genealogy. That whole line of scoundrels and misfits with all the family dysfunction and all the unwanted pregnancies, that whole family tree is adopted right into God's family. Into his own family. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he chose this family. He chose it. He's the one doing the adopting. He chose people like this. When Jesus came into the world with a family like this, it's not their pedigree that reflects well on him. That's the kind of thing you hope to find when you do a genealogy. I've got some king in my line. Their pedigree is going to reflect on me, make me important. He's the one that changes everything for them. It is their unbelievable privilege to be included in the genealogy of the Messiah, to be able to say, Believe it or not, the Savior of the world came from us. And that's a privilege that no sinner ever deserved, but it is the gracious promise of God that goes all the way back to the beginning of his promises. In the garden in Genesis 3, after the first man and woman rejected God in their sin, severed their relationship there, broke it, became dead to God, 
God promised that the Savior of humanity, the one who's going to fix this relationship that we've broken with God, the one who's going to restore it and bring us back to life with God, the Savior of humanity, he would come from humanity itself. That human beings would be privileged to participate in the restoration of all things, in the redemption, in, in him making all things new, in new creation. God promised that from sinners would come a Savior for sinners. That's crazy. So this whole line of sinners is made new through their association with Jesus. God opens up his family to people like this, and they're people like us. They're people like us. They're just like us. It isn't just the names recorded in this chapter that are blessed. It's all who who Jesus calls brothers and sisters in the family of God who are blessed through their relationship with him. Remember, uh, Jesus begins this seventh seven in the list of generations. He begins the fulfillment of God's people. And that fulfillment goes on to include all those who follow him, all those who are connected directly to him. The believing children of believing Abraham who fathered a multitude of nations. We are adopted into the family of God through the spirit of adoption. So we are Jesus' people. He's our people. We're his people, right? Every bit as much as the people in this list. Jesus is the only one who deserves to belong in the family of God, but he gives his belonging, his real belonging, to us through our adoption. Adoption doesn't mean fake. It's real. Jesus is the only one who deserves to belong in God's family, but he gives that belonging to us. That's the origin story of our hero, coming into the world to remake the world. Now, that's what this genealogy is. It's the genesis of the new creation. That's literally what it says uh, there in verse 1. This is the book of the genesis. That's the Greek word is genesis, uh, obviously, where we get our English word. And it's the title of the first book of the Bible, right? It calls to mind that first book of the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth the first time, the story of Jesus Christ is the story of God making all things new. It's the story of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the new Genesis. Our stories are rewritten through our association with him, through our relationship to him, through our adoption, through faith into his family tree. So we can call God our father. That's the way Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, not to pray my father, to pray our father, right? He's talking about himself and us. He's saying, my God, your God, my father, your father. And Jesus has called us brothers and sisters. So, so God is our father. He's Jesus and our father through our adoption. So J.I. Packer has this great famous book called Knowing God. And he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on, on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of, of adoption. So, so we're God's children. We're Jesus' people. We have a belonging that is better than biology. It's real. And if that's true, then what kind of people can we be in welcoming other new brothers and sisters into this family? Right? 
Jesus has said, we're his people. We're important to God. He says that about other people too. What kind of people can we be in welcoming new brothers and sisters into his family? We're blessed to be in God's family through the grace of the Lord Jesus alone, through no merit of our own, through no fault of our own, right? We know what it's like to not deserve to belong here. Do you think maybe we could extend the same belonging to others who don't deserve to be part of God's family? Do you think we could think they're important because God says they're important to him and they're his people? Do you think we could associate with some pretty unsavory types? Do you think we could believe the grace of God for sinners and welcome other scoundrels and misfits and pray to our Father together with them? Do you think that sinners like us might be able to participate in bringing forth the Savior to other sinners? The genealogy of Jesus says we can. And that's a great privilege. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you worked for long ages through a pretty strange choice of people, if you ask us, to bring forth Jesus to be the Savior of this world. We don't understand all your ways. We don't know how you could do things like this, uh, but we thank you. It's amazing that you would open up your family to people like us so that we might be adopted through your son. You were not stuck with us, like sometimes we feel with our biological family members stuck. You were not stuck with us. You chose us, and you set your love upon us. Thank you for all the wonderful things that we learn about you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in a list of names like this. Please make our adoption as your children the most important thing in our lives. And make it so that we love to see other new brothers and sisters brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus. We, we all have lists of names of people who are close to us, people who are in our lives. Please bring them also into your family as you've brought us. And use us as you see fit toward that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.